Welcome to American Ambassadors Events, the podcast that allows listeners to sit in on otherwise exclusive events hosted by the Council of American Ambassadors. This episode features a presentation by Ambassador Harry Thomas Jr., who offered an overview of the current state of global affairs at the Council's Contentious Neighbors Spring Conference on May 7, 2019. CAA member Ambassador Tom McDonald introduced Ambassador Thomas. Ambassador Thomas is the recipient of the Secretary of State's Distinguished Service Award, the Arnold Raffel Memorial Award for Mentoring, uh, the Senior Foreign Service Presidential Award, several Superior Awards and Meritorious Honor Awards, the uh, Order of Shinkatuna, I think I got that right, of the Philippines for exceptional service, and in Hoxigno Vinces Award um, from my Latin days of uh, you know being uh, a server at the Catholic Church in Binghamton, New York, and he had got that award from also the College of the Holy Cross. Uh, Mite Aquino Thomas is his wonderful wife. He has three grown adult children. They reside in Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, He has his New York roots, so he's a very fervent fan of New York sports teams. He enjoys snorkeling, golf, uh, and connecting on social media with friends around the world. Uh, I must say he did a masterful job responding to former Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe's removal from office in November of 2017. We all remember that. And also in handling the early days of the presidency of Emerson Menengagwa. Uh, I must say that for those of us who were waiting like 20 years for, we would call him Comrade Bob to leave. Uh, and uh, I had Andy Young come twice and other uh, emissaries to try to convince President Mugabe to leave office peacefully. Uh, That was of no avail. And lo and behold, under Harry's leadership, it happened. So uh, we are terribly grateful for that. Um, And having sat in that chair out in Harare, I know what a difficult um, relationship that is to manage an important country, not only in Africa, but in the world for America. So let me give you now, without further ado, uh, the Honorable Ambassador Harry Thomas, Jr. Good afternoon. Uh, Gentlemen, please join me and wish advance happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers in the room. Uh, No, nothing better. As Tom said, my mom just turned 94 last weekend, and I was in South Carolina visiting her. So we're all blessed to have that. Uh, Thanks for uh, inviting me. And Tom, thanks for that introduction. It was not necessary, but it was appreciated. Uh, Ambassadors, thank you for your service to our nation. I was fortunate to have been one of those who followed in Tom's shoes. I retired last year, but there is something lacking something missing from my life. Three letters that we can all relate to, John. What do you think those three letters are that I miss so much? G-S-O. 
the people who came and fixed our houses and residences. Now I'm the GSO in my house, as I'm sure many of you are. And I do miss, as you do, our brave Marine presenting me with a, a gift at the ball. Uh, but I had a great run. I have lots of stories, as I'm sure you do. Got to play golf with Skip in Manila. I can't tell you how he, he taught me uh, certain Japanese words, but um, uh, <clears throat> it, was, it was great. Uh, I can remember beaming with pride as I answered USA to Nelson Mandela's question of what nation I represented. I can even boast, as I do to my children, of sitting uh, with a bathrobe-clad Katy Perry in the back of my Suburban. So those of you who are a little older don't know, but to the young folks, she's a major singing superstar. Uh, and of course, having Condi Rice leave me alone countless times to brief President Bush in the Oval, a wonderful person to work for. I am truly blessed and a long way from the Harlem of my youth. And just like you, I learned so much from my travels. I recall arriving in Nigeria and seeing billboards saying, black is beautiful. And then the next line, drink Guinness Stout. So I learned, one of the many lessons I learned, was resolved to learn languages and cultures because just because somebody is similar doesn't mean they are the same. And I thought I had it right. I studied languages. I studied cultures. I really knew the Philippines, as John did. I conversed in Tagalog, drank water in villages without hesitation. Then I married a Filipina, as John did, and realized how little I knew. It was a humbling but another lesson. And please, Imelda Marcos is many things, but most of them and most of them not good, not a good person. But trust me, she's not the only Filipina with closets full of shoes. <laughs> I had a great ride in the Foreign Service, and I got to meet uh, so, many, uh, so many people. Ambassador Britton, a great mentor and friend, and I salute him for his service to the Marines, and I hope he's got to show you his Congressional Gold Medal. It, it weighs about 10 pounds, but it is something that uh, we salute him for. <clears throat> but now I'm somebody that nobody misses. As you know, when you leave the uh, diplomatic entrance of the department, you're waiting for your Cadillac or BMW to come. It doesn't come, so you have to slap around to the orange line. Um, and that's how it should be, because we are mm -hmm. all expendable, something leaders in most nations do not realize until they are deposed. But I don't miss Codell's. Uh, Senator All Inspector was my least favorite. Uh, we always had to arrange squash smashes for him. Between and before, difficult to arrange meetings with Indian interlocutors. Solution, we had him play India's former national champion. We took sweet solace in seeing him lose. And lose he did. But we as a nation are not losing. Not by a long shot. We are winning. In November 2017, just before the military drove dictator Robert Mugabe from office, as Tom said, Zimbabwe experienced its first ever multiracial protest march. 
our embassy right by Russia's embassy. And when those people marched by our embassy, anybody have an idea what they chanted? Kathleen, what do you think they chanted? Anybody, just a guess. USA, USA. USA, USA, in a place where Mugabe would have had you believe we were hated. They did not chant Russia or China. Why? Because we stood by our values of democracy, human rights, and open markets. So please don't tell me that Africans don't want democracy. I departed Zimbabwe once again <clears throat> fully understanding of America's greatness, but also the limits of our power, and the fact that we can't check everything. Just because Zimbabwe's new leaders have failed doesn't mean that the people do not want democracy. So I'm recommending that we all take a deep breath. Things are not so bad. They're not so good either, but they're not so bad. I bet many of you have read How Democracies Die or The Soul of America. In the former, Levitsky and Ziblatt tell us that the challenges facing American democracy run deep. The weakening of our democratic norms is rooted in extreme partisan polarization, one that extends beyond policy differences into an existential conflict over race and culture. And if one thing is clear from studying breakdowns throughout history, it is extreme polarization that can kill democracies. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. The promise of history is that we can find the rhymes before it's too late. In the latter, John Meacham reminds us of the challenges that we faced in the past and stresses that strong leadership and institutions have and continue to serve as a check on abuse. What it takes to resist, what it takes to protest, is to remember that Lincoln was right, that we do have our better angels, that we are the last best hope. And that may sound soft, it may sound gooey, but as Henry Kissinger used to say, it has the virtue of being true. I recently listened to Secretary Rice at Yale, <clears throat> along with four other, three other former secretaries of state uh, came for two days talk, and she reminded us that the political dysfunction in Washington is only one aspect of our democracy. The brilliance of our founding fathers was not only to produce checks and balances at the federal level, but to create myriad institutions through the society and governing structures that could check one another, she said. Perhaps I'm a little bit more optimistic, but yes, people abroad are worried. And I think it's awfully important not to let them think that American democracy is only characterized by what's going on in Washington. So what do we do next? What do we do? As we were taught when I joined the Foreign Service, wither democracy. Remember that, John? It was wither everything. Um, but in my humble opinion, we got lazy. We stopped practicing diplomacy. After the first Gulf War, our power was once again unquestioned. Countries went along with our goals. We did not have to work too hard to persuade. We had not hard to negotiate, even with our allies. 
In the end, with few exceptions, we often got our way. That day is over. We must compete. We have to redouble our efforts. We Americans relish competition. And we're not going to win by demonizing the Chinese or downplaying Putin as just a nuisance. We can't learn from China. What are they doing to build alliances? What is our counter to the Silk Road Initiative? Why are African business persons traveling to Guangzhou and not New York to purchase industrial equipment? Winning is not going it alone, but bridging with like-minded, sustainable alliances built on mutual interests and co cooperation. Now, there are so many things that we need and can do. Of course, for me, one of the priorities is rebuilding state and AID. But we must evaluate our missions, define. We have to arm them in ways they can succeed. Don't confine them to fortress embassies. You all were ambassadors, and you know it's your job to send people out. Establish small consulates like we had before. When John Negroponte finished his first few tours, he was made a consul in Brazil. If you look at history, we used to have four or five consulates in France. Why don't we do this anymore? Is France less important? Is Nice less important? Brazil has the world's 10th largest economy. We need to rethink these things. We need to encourage learning of language and culture. Foreign Service Institute does a great job, but there's nothing like living with people the way we did before to really learn the language, the culture. Identify the next Gandhi, the next Thatcher, or Lumumba. Now this is going to take political courage because our leaders, Democrat or Republican, fear another Benghazi. In our talks with the American people, we must explain Benghazi and alert to people's casualties. I know a close friend of mine told me that when our current secretary took office, he, he said, what really happened to Benghazi? <laughs> he was running the CIA. Um, and it was explained to him what happened. It was a, uh, it's a tragedy, a tragedy when we lose somebody. But my God, we lost so many men and women in Afghanistan and Iraq without congressional inquiry. Uh, I hope we don't lose others, but we can't stand behind these beautiful new fortresses. Even Zimbabwe, which I left a year ago, has built a $230 million embassy. $230 million embassy. And that was when I left. I'm sure it was more expensive because the delays were because of increased need for cybersecurity. And that is real. That is real. But if you're going to have consulates, you don't have to have all the cybersecurity. And I'll tell you what, when I was uh, in Harare, those last cables, it was great. I could type them at home. Because Tillerson only wanted unclassified material. So now, of course, he was an aberration. But you can provide a lot of information unclassified. And we have to engage our youth. Face it. Foreign Service Journal, State Magazine, 80s, 90s, 2000, today, continue to say, we've got to get better at public relations, explaining to the American people who we are. We have to get better. Have to. 
I am, I am fortunate to be at the Yale Jackson School. We have a few people entering the Foreign Service, but most are either going to Wall Street, Chicago, or, or NGOs. This is what these kids want. Check how many kids from Georgetown are joining the government. They're heading to Wall Street or K Street. I understand that, but we've got to talk to them about issues that are important to them. The environment, climate change, human trafficking, global health, and the one they all mentioned to me, conflict resolution. Now, personally, I don't understand why that's so important or even a major, but I know you have to talk to this generation in the way that they want to be talked to, things that they listen to. Anybody ever raise a teenager? I never want to do that again, but uh, we understand how you have to talk to them. And we have to explain that they can make an impact on businesses, on the rights of women and children, support for the LGBTIA and non-binary community, stress that they will gain transferable skills important to them, including communicating across cultures, that they'll be part of a team. We've got to tell them to stand up. It takes a lot of courage to stand up to your friends when they're wrong. Be that friend, Representative Omar or Stephen Miller. You have to tell people. Yale, it's easy to be a liberal. I'm sure it's easy to be a conservative at Auburn. But who's standing up to our friends? We've got to do that. And we must engage all Americans, not just the youth. Can't limit our outreach. Got to explain why fighting AIDS, poverty, terrorism, and corruption abroad is important to America. We need to stress how vital international trade and open markets are to our well-being. But we also, we must do a better job of listening to their concerns, the average American. And we must examine ourselves. Why, do the, why does the average American think we want to help foreigners at the expense of our own? Why are so many opposed to foreign assistance, even though most of that foreign assistance is tied and benefits American businesses? They're right to question sending American troops abroad after years of war in Afghanistan, where their sons and daughters were lost, and not many of ours served. We must ask why are developing nations poorer after half a century of aid? It's a legitimate question. It can't all be their fault. Where have we erred? We must explain what it takes to maintain America's primacy and why we cannot abdicate global leadership. Why are nations who are celebrating democratic ideals like the Philippines turning to despots? Why are we not confronting people like Duterte of the Philippines? It's not just what he's doing to kill alleged drug users. He's practicing crony capitalism, and he's giving up what we were calling, you call the South China Sea, we're calling the Western Philippine Sea. Why? Now, none of this is going to be easy, and we know there are no overnight solutions. There's some challenges that we cannot solve. We cannot abdicate our leadership. We cannot abandon our alliances. I think when I was a child, 
I was so impressed by President Kennedy. I wanted to be an astronaut. But I think his speech at Rice, where he talked about that we're going to the moon, that we're going to the moon. And he said, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one we're willing to accept. So that challenge of global leadership, of American leadership, is one that we continue to embrace with all of our challenges, with all. The visa line to come and immigrate into America is still far longer than China or Russia. Why? Why? They want better life for their children. They want opportunities. And just see how great immigrants do. I'll close in telling you two immigrant stories since they're so it's so fraught with peril to discuss immigration these days. Uh, Chrisetta Comerford's a friend of ours. She came in, in the US in 1984 from the Philippines. She had to drop out of the University of the Philippines because she, you have to come before she was 21. She got a job in Chicago washing lettuce. 1984. 2000, she was hired by Mrs. Bush to be assistant executive chef at the White House. Mrs. Obama and Mrs. Trump kept her on where she is the executive chef. Executive chef from not knowing what lettuce was. Another person that your children will know is Apple Day App. Anybody know Apple Day App? I had to learn how to pronounce his name. <laughs> Apple Day App is a member of a singing group called the Black Eyed Peas. His father, whom he did not know, was an African-American uh, member of our military. Militaries leave babies. And he got a Pearl S. Buck scholarship to come to the United States for high school. From there, he was adopted by an American family. He's gone on to fame and riches, and he gives a lot of money back to kids in the Philippines who are what they call Amer Asians. But you know what? He can't bring his mother or sisters to live in the mm -hmm. United States because they're not his mother and sisters anymore, right? You give somebody up for adoption internationally, that's not your parent. Now, because he's wealthy, he's able to provide for them, and quite well. But think of all the children of soldiers and sailors and airmen who cannot claim as we can, our precious American citizenship, and they're entitled to. And that debate never happens. So thank you for having me. I congratulate you again on your service. Uh, if you have any questions, I'm happy to take them. But uh, it's not doom and gloom. For me, optimism for America always. Always. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Um, wow, what a career you've had. Very impressive. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 
a kid from Harlem. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? Tell us. Well, I was born in Hall. I was born in Harlem to parents who came from the Great Migration. My father was the eighth of ten, and my mother the second of eight. <laughs> but my uh, their their parents struggled to send them to college uh, in South Carolina and Georgia. And my mother had to borrow her mother's shoes just to have shoes to walk across the stage when she graduated. Uh, so failure was not an option. Um, and I went to a high school in Brooklyn with 6,000 boys and two girls. <laughs> girls didn't do engineering. Now there are more girls than boys at that, that, that high school. Uh, it's the wealthiest public high school in the United States. I'm very proud of, very proud of it. And, and Holy Cross, my father wanted me to go to Yale. So you don't want to do what your father wants when he's 18. <laughs> but I know from high school I needed a small college. Uh, so I was blessed to go to Holy Cross and, uh, where I, um, and then Columbia for graduate school. And I worked for a gentleman named Edward J. Logue. Who was an, uh, he built Roosevelt Island in New York, Fannel Hall and Quincy Market. He used to wear J. Press suits with the Yale gate. <laughs> but Ed had to convert from Catholicism to Episcopalian in 1948 to marry the dean of Yale Law School's daughter. So let's not tell me there has not been progress in America. But he was the one, after working for Chet Bowles, he was in the Foreign Service for five years, who told me to join the Foreign Service. So I thank him, and now I'm at Yale. So my daddy and Ed should be happy. That's great. That's great. Well, all of us applauded it doesn't appear that the successor has represented other than just very modest, more symbolic change, not real change. Mm -hmm. What would be your prediction of one very symbolic headed in terms of people actually having votes and discounted? And secondly, mm -hmm. now that you're out of this, you're free to express your views on current markets as it relates to the symbolic. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Um, to be frank, they never, they never stopped us from saying anything about Zimbabwe. I don't think they cared much. Um, but the, uh, look, the, the, people, the reason they had this, this takeover was because the military was threatened by Mugabe and his wife. And the person who took over was nicknamed the Crocodile. So that tells you. And uh, he had a window of hope. The Brits were really supporting him. We were more questioning. And he has behave like he did for 37 years of, of, of killing people and uh, restricting rights. Um, but as I said, just because he has failed doesn't mean this is what the people want. I don't have much hope for um, him or many of the uh, African nations. I, I feel South Africa is in peril. Um, but Rwanda has made a comeback. Kagame is not a Democrat by any stretch of the imagination, but from a place of genocide. Now he has people from Europe paying $1,500 a person to see the gorillas. It's amazing <laughs> what kind of tourism. So there are many models that you can come back through, but uh, most of Africa is going to have a hard way to go. Hard way to go. Is there more we can do as a, can American foreign policy have any real impact? Sure. I mean, there, there, there are so many programs that we have. First of all, um, HIV-AIDS, PEPFAR, President Bush's great program has worked. And the reason it worked so well in Zimbabwe is because they were educated. Uh, despite Mugabe being the, the, the terror he was, 
You know, we had six Rhodes Scholars in the last three years in Zimbabwe, from Zimbabwe. It's amazing. So they value education. The Mandela uh, Washington program that brings kids here uh, when they're in their 20s, great program, Fulbright, all of these programs that are difficult to quantify uh, that brings American chance to study in America, scholarships, culture. You know, we used to send Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald overseas. Maybe we can't afford Beyonce, um, but we can do a better job, especially on the, on the soft side. On, on the hard side, yeah, we should only, in my opinion, be giving assistance to countries that are engaging in serious economic reform. Uh, and that's not so many. So maybe you want to pick um, uh, models or countries that you can work with. They're not going to be so, so many. And we have to re-examine everything we do at eight, everything we do in Millennium Challenge Corporation. I was aghast in the Philippines when the Millennium Challenge Corporation picked a Chinese company to do the construction project. That would have never happened the, way, the other way around. Uh, so we have to look at those things uh, <clears throat> clearly. Uh, but yeah, uh, we, can, we can help with, um, with trade. We can help give business persons credit as, as I said, every, it's not just Zimbabweans. All people in developing countries go to China. Why can't they come to America to purchase our products? We know our economy is huge, but we need to give them a way to do that. And that's not aid. Yes, sir. Yeah, it, it, it's not in Zimbabwe, but it's in South Africa. It's in Liz uh, Lesotho and Swaziland, they make Levi's jeans there and other things. It's actually increased other salaries for people, giving them more opportunities in, in other types of textiles. Um, but you know, all of these countries and most of the textiles you're losing out to, to China, Bangladesh, or Vietnam. They're not going to be able to compete. So what, what else can they do? They, you know, but they, they innovate. Um, in Zimbabwe, people were buying cars with cryptocurrencies two years ago they couldn't get dollars. <laughs> they find ways to, the, the innovation that we talk about, uh, whether they're in Peru or Bangladesh, poor middle class find ways to innovate. And we need, and Zimbabwe, we had an innovation hub to help young business people. That was public affairs money, not uh, AID money. But these kind of things that we can do, we, sh we should while constantly re-examining and re-evaluating. 50 years of just giving you know, $100 million to a country is a waste of time and a waste of money. And if they don't steal our money, they're stealing somebody else's money. Ted. Gary, I also mm. have known Matt as uh, Wendell. I leave South Carolina, both of you are not. You are not in South Carolina. Yeah. My answer is always, as soon as I tell them, as soon as I found out where I was. <laughs> <laughs> He, he had great constituent services. Yeah. Now, one thing that I, 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 I
I'll send it to my mom. You're, you're younger than her, Ted, by a year. One of the things that I often get asked is, how do you become an ambassador? Mm-hmm. you get that question a lot. What do you tell the young folks who ask you that? Well, I don't tell them everything because, you know, two of the three, I was exec second DG, so I was on the committee twice on the D committee. Uh, and nobody would believe it if I told you what went on in the D committee. Um, but um, for, for them, I tell them to work hard. Work extremely hard, study languages. Uh, you know, my friends in the private sector tell me they're tired of just economics majors. They want people who can analyze, who, can, who are excellent in oral and uh, written communication skills. Of course, I was a political officer in the Foreign Service, so I would edit Mark Twain. Uh, but those are the skills, language, travel. Look, I tell them it's easy, because for me, I never, I never traveled abroad until I joined the Foreign Service. I didn't speak any languages until I joined the Foreign Service. And unfortunately, until I retired last year, all I had was a black passport. I was aghast that I had to pay $52 for a blue passport. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think in anything, work hard. I had a, a young man call me this morning, and I told him also to uh, you know, be involved in embassy events. You know, when I was in Kaduna, Nigeria, all we had was BBC and a little bit of VOA. I don't know if you guys remember those Navy movies that used to come around. Uh, and you watch and read the J.C. Penney catalog, Christmas catalog, a few times. So, you know, unless you wanted to go crazy, you want to go outside your room and you were going to get to know that guy from Alabama, the gal from Alaska. These kids have 5G or 4G wherever they are. They can stay in their rooms at night. They don't have to get to know their colleagues as well as they, I think they should. And they, they miss out on knowing a lot about the country they work in. We're not going to change them from doing that. So the, our, my question is, how do we adapt to that? And that's where ambassadors and leadership come, come in. Yes, ma'am. To follow up on that You know, it's a hardy perennial. I don't see that changing. One of the challenges is we only give the exam like once a year now, or we used to give it three times, and we used to let you take it three, three times a year. I know a guy who took it eight, another person 16, um, but it's expensive. So in rebuilding, you have to give money to the exams. Uh, Dr. Rice took us up to Camp David to uh, brief President Bush on what we were doing. He was surprised that over 25% of us had served in Iraq and Afghanistan, and we had the military explaining how important it was. Um, and it takes about a year just to ramp up new hiring because of all the things we have to do. But the security check, that's still going to take a long time because it's not our guys doing it. We have to uh, contact the, the police in Jordan and wait for them to respond. And of course, third world countries, they take forever. 
Um, and so, yeah, that, that delays. And it, yes, it's a hard exam. When I pass, you can pass. <laughs> um, but, and then everybody wants to be a political officer. So you have to pass with a higher score. You want to be a political or you know, economic officer in management or, or, or a consular. The, the, the quick way is to start rebuilding the foreign service by adding more people as officers as well as specialists. If you get, uh, if you get a secretary and president who want to do that, the money is appropriated still another year, as I said, just to build up that hiring, hiring process. And if you give the exam two or three times, if you give the orals as we used to do in San Francisco and Boston, in addition to Washington, you can bring people in, I would say maybe six or seven months uh, as opposed to a year. But for the people who, um, if you have a Chinese relative, you know, still living in China or Russia, it's gonna delay. It's gonna be a year. I think, you know, when you're in your 20s, a year seems like a hell of a long time. To me, it seems so short now, you know, so, uh, but that's, that's going to be the system. Uh, but it's, we're not going to make you millionaires, but it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Yes, ma'am. Uh, you mentioned the Millennium Challenge program. Mm-hmm. A couple of minutes ago. When I was at UNESCO uh, under President George Bush, You're talking about Nigeria. <laughs> well, he was, you know. Uh, well, uh, there are two. There, there are a few, few ways. I know when I was ambassador to Bangladesh, their foreign secretary came back from an OIC conference in Nigeria, and they were listed by Transparency International as the most corrupt country in the world. And he called me and said, "How dare you call me corrupt after a week in Nigeria?" So I, I understand that. But look, the reality is we haven't been honest with the American people. In Afghanistan, Iraq, there's almost accepted leakage, 20 to 35%. Nobody wants to tell them that's the truth. And then when they find out, we, we scramble around to explain, explain ways. But what I admire about the Millennium Challenge Corporation, it's been a very lean effort. You have two Americans, and then you hire local people, mostly young folks under 30, who are still idealistic. And it basically, it involves two parts. One, you pick an important ministry, the, um, the central bank or the finance uh, ministry, to try to modernize them. And people are only given jobs for two to five years. 
So they know they're not going to be there forever like FSNs, although they're paid uh, much more. And those efforts to modernize and help central banks finance have worked very well. You go in these places, they don't even have computers, paper, all of this analysis. That, work, that part worked well. There's not much corruption in that because you're just educating people. The big challenge, as I said, is when you, as we did in the Philippines, hire a Chinese company to work in the southern Philippines to build a road. Well, I'm from New York. There's a lot of road you know, corruption there, too. So that, that part we have to reexamine. Uh, the longer you have an agency around, it goes from looking at things hard to looking at, oh, we got this money, now we have to spend it. Because Congress doesn't allow us to say, you know what? This money is not going to be good for this year. Let us use it next year or let us use it in a different way. We're not allowed to do it. So you, you scramble, whether it's the, the end of the fiscal year or the millennium, to, to find something to do. I mean, we're all adults. Congress is adults. We need to have that conversation. Uh, but you can help those ministries in that way. Building roads uh, that's, and uh, other white elephants, construction, you're going to have some corruption. But we don't want to say that. We say no corruption. I think, like, uh, for those of you who've served in developing countries, you know, if I had it to do over again, I would stop. We're telling all these countries, stop being corrupt. They're corrupt. It hasn't worked. So then just don't, we trade with them, but don't give them aid. You know, I'm, I'm just, it didn't work. It's not because they're stupid. It's because they wanted to be corrupt for their own selfish reasons. And maybe that's too harsh, but it's my belief. That was Ambassador Harry Thomas Jr. at the Council of American Ambassadors Contentious Neighbors Conference. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to American Ambassadors events on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review.